How's everyone? It's 8.35 p.m. on the West Coast, Friday evening, October 29, 2021. We're waiting for Roland Martin, unfiltered YouTube channel. His show notes for tonight says... West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin meets with leaders of the top civil rights groups. Today is Friday, October 28, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin on Filter, streaming live on the Black Star Network, live from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, civil rights leaders, they meet with Senator Joe Manchin over the For the People Act. The question is, is he going to do what's necessary in the filibuster? We're talking with Melanie Campbell, the National Coalition of Black City Participation, about that particular meeting. Also, it's a do not call list for cops uh, in Maryland. Uh, two state's attorneys have made it clear these cops have serious credibility issues and they will not call them to uh, the witness stand in a significant number of cases. Uh, also, the Supreme Court rescinds Oklahoma death row in the Julius Jones state of execution. Now the countdown is on for his clemency hearing uh, in that particular state as well. Also, NAACP, they're urging professional athletes not to sign with Texas teams. Why? We'll explain on the show as well. Uh, plus, in my book club segment, I'm going to talk about uh, a new book called Freedom to Discriminate, how realtors conspire to segregate housing and divide America. It is a fascinating conversation. If you want to understand the housing crisis in America today, it all dates back to policies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Folks, you don't want to miss that. All of that, it's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. Okay, the YouTube channel Roland Martin will begin in a few seconds. And the interview that he did with Gene Slater on his new book is worth your time listening. It's all the way to the end of the program. So I'm going to jump ahead and see if I can find it. Oops. Find it from the beginning. It's absolutely the best. Don't want to miss that you're only going to see right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered Streaming Live on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back. Okay, after this commercial break, then he'll interview Gene Slater. It's about oh, 30 minutes, maybe an hour interview, but it is quite fascinating. I'll see if I can get it started from the beginning. We almost, almost had the beginning of it. Here we go. Let's get, get right into it. It is it, very interesting to me 
whenever we have this conversation and folks talk about, oh, well, you know, African-Americans, I mean, look, we're all on the same page and, and, and we're all in the same boat. And and these things dealing with race, those things were just so long ago. And what I keep trying to explain to people is that you cannot negate what has happened uh, since 1619, but you can't also act as if everything stopped for African-Americans uh, with the end of slavery. You have to deal with the 92 years of Jim Crow. And one area where we are still impacted in 2021 is housing segregation. Yes, that's exactly true. And we talk about that. So, so bring us in terms of into 2021, uh, into the 21st century, where the average person uh, walking around doesn't really understand how devastating uh, housing segregation uh, has been and how it continues to impact African Americans and others. Right. Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that housing segregation was an invention. It wasn't like the norm. It wasn't. It was part of the myths that the realtors promoted that segregation was always the way it was. Segregation was invented. I mean, it was the same way as the airplane was invented at about the same time in the early 1900s as a marketing tool by the country's realtors, who then used racial covenants, racial steering, um, shaped federal programs, federal housing programs in the Depression, all to enforce segregation. And there were great battles, uh, finally, when this continued by the early 1960s, African-Americans were excluded still from 98% of new homes, 95% of existing neighborhoods. Um, and with tremendous disinvestment because all federal money and federal investment went into the all-white suburbs that were being created. And that legacy from directly from that history, from the differences in, in household wealth that were created in that era, from the creation of single family zoning, which realtors um, were the key promoters of as a way to support keeping uh, cities all white of fragmenting local suburbs, that legacy of the view that an African American or minority moving into an all white neighborhood would destroy that neighborhood, that, that legacy remains and remains powerful. One of the ways, um, one of the best examples of this, I think, was a study done by the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago in 2017. They looked back at the lines that were drawn on redlining maps in the 1930s. Um, redlining maps were created when the realtors shaped FHA. They were its key lobbyists. They helped draw up the maps. And what they did was they said, Okay, and the maps, by the way, everybody talks about them now, but at the time they were secret. The NACP didn't have copies, nobody had copies of them. Um, what, so they looked back, Federal Reserve in 2017 went back and looked at the lines on those maps where they were drawn simply down the, bar, you know, the, the edge of the street. And at the time there were very little differences on three blocks to the right and three blocks to the left, six blocks to the right, six blocks to the left. They were arbitrary lines that were drawn to try and distinguish neighborhoods where presumably there would be all, it would permanently be all white. And so that the federal government could make loans. So they looked at the differences back in the 1930s. There were almost no differences on either side of these lines. In 2017, these differences had were tremendous in terms of home ownership rates, 
in terms of the prices of homes, in terms of housing condition and overcrowding and investment. So in effect, the history of that era, the legacy that was created during those 60 years of formal segregation, government-backed segregation, has compounded over time. It's compounded, as I say, geographically in terms of, and you know, by cities, by single family zoning, by fiscal zoning, by what can be invested in areas. It's compounded in terms of racial wealth. When blacks were denied the ability to participate effectively in FHA programs, in VA programs, in the loans that were made by banks for decades after decades, this had at a time when housing prices were roughly, you know, a fifth in real terms what they are today, this has had an enormous impact on, on the country today and on the persistence of segregation. So I think there are these direct economic legacies, um, but there are also political legacies as well, which have made which have tremendously weakened efforts at fair housing and efforts at integration. So and this is a thing that for so many people, again, especially a lot of white Americans, who don't understand how deep embedded this has been in our system. You know, we're not talking just about that southern town. We're not talking about, oh, uh, this particular area uh, in, uh, the, 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 in, in, in the ghettos or the slums uh, of New York. No, what we're talking about was national. We're talking about how the federal government, the purse, billions of dollars created this racially segregated system that we have been trying to claw our way out of. And then when we look at our neighborhoods today, our schools today, when we look at the resources in these areas, when we look at what was built and what was it? When we look at what is dilapidated today, all of these things go back to this housing segregation in the United States of America. Yes. So, you know, I've worked in, you know, housing, affordable housing for 50 years, starting with looking at every abandoned building in the South Bronx in the 1970s, worked on all sorts of things. And, you know, in 30 states and, you know, hundreds of cities. And one of the things, without my understanding the history of it, was the similarity of the patterns of, you know, inner city ghettos, of borderlines, of all white suburbs, as though this was somehow a natural phenomenon. It was just always this way. It was this way because it was created this way. The realtors, which is was the organized real estate industry, the local real estate boards in every city in the country, were the ones who created and promoted residential segregation, would kick out any and freeze out of the business any realtor who sold to a minority in a white neighborhood. That was their code of ethics. And they imposed this system, the system of racial covenants. And then in the 30s, they shaped, they were the key lobbyists for the federal housing programs, which then took the racial system the realtors had created informally and ad hoc, neighborhood by neighborhood, you know, going around organizing petitions from neighbors paid by Bank of America and other banks to get petitions for racial covenants. This was now organized in an institutional way by the federal government. 
the Federal Housing Administration and the creation of long-term fixed rate, low down payment mortgages that didn't exist at the time was probably the most powerful invention in the history of housing finance in the history of the world. It helped create a afford- tremendous affordability. You could buy a home for less than it costs to rent, but that program was designed and shaped by the realtors to work for white Americans and to keep areas exclusively white. And so the reason the patterns are exactly the same in 350 cities is because they were designed to be exactly the same out of the same blueprint, which then had the consequence. Picture picture the 1930s when if you're a developer, you're a builder, and you're building, you can get an FHA commitment only if you show you have racial covenants or you're in far off suburbs, far from any minorities, you can get a commitment for 100, for 100% financing uh, 100, on 100% of the homes in that area. You can get a commitment for all the dollars that it's going to cost you to build that, sometimes for more than that. Um, but if somebody wants to invest in housing in, an, in a mixed racial neighborhood, they can't. There's no money for that at all. So it was like starving some areas and putting money elsewhere. The other thing that I think it's important to recognize is this racial system was originally excluding anybody other than Caucasians. Um, And Caucasians meant what realtors decided in each area. Often it meant Jews, Italians, Hispanics, um, Japanese, Chinese Americans. Over time and after World War II, as more of these groups became accepted by realtors, basically, who were the gatekeepers, became accepted as white, as being allowed to move into the neighborhoods, what you had with the remaining neighborhoods, which had always been the racially mixed areas of cities, became effectively all black because they were the only people who were prevented from moving out. And that's, that's why the system is so universal. North and South is exactly the same. And from the point of view of those people who are excluded, they're African-Americans, it was a tremendous denial of opportunities, both in housing. They had to pay 20 to 30 percent more for the houses in the same condition, because like in any you know restricted market, you have to bid up the costs. Often, if they could move into white neighborhoods by paying speculators that difference. So it had that enormous difference. And the, the pattern was the same in every city in the country. So I think that that's really important to understand. This wasn't a phenomenon simply in the deep south in some ways. The first real racial covenants that created America's restricted neighborhoods were in Berkeley, California, a mile and a half from the University of California campus. They weren't in Alabama or Mississippi. Segregation was created in the north. All right, folks, I've got to hold my unfiltered video in just one moment. He has quite a few commercials mixed in here. I'll do my best to get around the commercials where I can. This is a heck of an interview. You don't want to miss it. Reagan and how he was this political god. The fact of the matter is, Ronald Reagan was a racist. Ronald Reagan supported that statewide ballot initiative in California. There's a great article uh, that I actually I pulled up uh, in the piece was how the L.A. Times 
helped write segregation into California's constitution. It was white populism in California uh, that also drove this as well. And so he, this is the precursor. This is before the, uh, the Fair Housing Act uh, of 1968. How white populism, mm, echoes of today, uh, played a role in segregation. And it was by design to say, we go, we're going to put it into the law. You don't have to sell to those people. Right, right. So because segregation remained so powerful in the late 1950s, and early 1950s let me give you another example from California. In the, in the entire decade of the 1950s, of 325,000 new homes that were sold in the Bay Area, 50 were without regard to race, 50 out of 325,000. In the San Fernando Valley with 750,000 people living in all white neighborhoods, the Fair Housing Council knew of one black family that had been able to move into those neighborhoods. So that was how powerful and how organized the system of segregation was. It didn't depend on individual decision. It was an organized system um, of the realtors. When fair housing advocates, people trying to end this discrimination, passed a state fair housing law in 1963 called the Rumford Act, um, fair housing law, a very modest law that applied to a quarter of single family homes and to larger rental properties. The maximum fine was $500. And in the first 18 months, it handled like 82 cases or so within the state. When they passed this law, the realtors had a choice of how to respond. Um, in a couple of states, in Massachusetts and Colorado, realtors decided to go along and try and make this work. But in the vast majority of the country, and especially in California, which had half the realtors of the United States, they decided to organize a ballot proposition, a state constitutional amendment that would forever ban any type of fair housing, would create an absolute right, the absolute discretion of any owner to sell or rent to whoever they chose without any restriction by the state or any city. Okay? This would prohibit any limit on residential discrimination. This was such a radical measure. No state had something like this in its constitution. The realtors were entirely politically isolated. No prominent politician. And at the time, not Barry Goldwater, who was opposing the U.S. Uh, 1960s Civil Rights Act, nor Ronald Reagan would touch this proposition, would endorse it for fear of seeming racist. So the realtors in order to win a campaign, and here they are in California, a fairly liberal, moderate state, um, with a popular two-term governor, Pat Brown, who had been reelected over Richard Nixon by making fair housing his highest priority. Um, the strong liberal legislature, the support of big business, the support of um, labor unions, the support of all the church leaders and all the archbishops. How were the realtors gonna combat that without seeming racist? How can you run a campaign for a proposition that permanently denies people the choice of where to live and make that seem not like a racist campaign? And their technique was to take, was to come up with the exact opposite of the idea of freedom that Martin Luther King talked about and was at the heart of the civil rights movement, that, that anyone's freedom depends on everyone, that freedom is something shared. They decided to turn this on their on its head and they created the, the notion 
of absolute individual freedom and freedom of choice that now that came to shape the Republican Party that led to the rise of Ronald Reagan and it shapes our politics today. And uh, what was at the heart of this was a couple of a couple of techniques. And it's important to understand these techniques because this still drive American politics on issues from vaccines to masks, um, you know, to guns, uh, to abortions, um, campaign contributions. It's the same idea. Rather than freedom meaning something that the role of government, the Declaration of Independence, is to secure these rights, to balance the rights of all so that nobody dominates those of others, just like in freedom of speech and freedom of press, where government has to balance those rights, was to create an idea that freedom isn't that, that freedom is your absolute personal property, like your home, with your absolute ability to do whatever you want, regardless of the rights of others, that your rights trump those of others, in other words. And that was the idea they created. And they called this, they made this into the mantra of colorblind freedom by saying, we're in favor of the same rights for black owners and white owners. What was that right? The right to discriminate. Um, so they argued they were the ones in favor of equal rights, trying to steal that message, you know, from the civil rights advocates. And they did something. They, they then took a narrow right that nobody had ever talked about. The right of an owner to decide they didn't want to just sell for the highest price, but to pick the race of who they were going to sell to a right nobody had ever talked about and realtors had spent 50 years violating with racial covenants. They took that right and they elevated it as being the litmus test of American freedom itself. The same, and by totally ignoring the right to own a home, the right to choose where to live, the right to rent, they left out all those other parts and said, this is freedom. The same technique could then be used on guns, on abortion, on campaign contributions, to elevate and single narrow right and say, this is the litmus test of freedom itself. The set, this other thing that they did was conservatives at the time were quite divided between um, social conservatives who were in favor of tradition and you know school prayer and so forth and wanted government controls to enforce tradition versus libertarians who were against government restrictions. So what the realtors did was they created the language of they used the language of libertarianism, of individual your absolute individual rights, to do the opposite, to enforce past social traditions and say nobody can challenge it. In effect, it said you have an absolute individual right to a conforming community, and that's what we see today throughout this. And by creating a racially neutral language of freedom. They created the ideology for what became a new Republican Party. In 1964, 80% of Republican Congress, more than Democrats, voted for the Civil Rights Act and voted for the Voting Rights Act. This was a new, a new Republican Party emerged, one that had first been designed in the late 1940s by Charles Wallace Collins, a Southern racist banking lawyer, to say, if Jim Crow was going to be preserved, they needed an lot. The Southern Democrats needed to leave the Democratic Party and join with those Republicans who would agree to not want to restrict uh, local control of of rights of civil rights in return for the federal government being kept out of business regulation. That party became possible in the mid 1960s, 
And in the midst of Goldwater's debacle, this ideology became that ideology. And Ronald Reagan picked up the language of the realtors. He didn't support Proposition 14, the realtors proposition at the time, because he was afraid of being seen racist. Two years later, it proved popular, won 65% of the vote, 75% of the white vote at the height of American liberalism. Reagan then, when it was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, he picked up the realtor's language. He said, if an individual wants to discriminate against a Negro in selling or renting his house, it's his right to do so. It's his absolute freedom. And this, he was sort of an amateur trying to find a message. This provided, this idea of freedom provided his message. And that's so what you're, so, so what you're laying today. out, and this is important, Gene. Yeah. And, and this is why I, I want to go beyond just the so, so what you're saying is that if you take this issue, you take Senator Barry Goldwater's campaign against the Civil Rights Act, uh, and a lot of people don't understand that the likes of William F. Buckley and other conservatives were in support of civil rights, but it was Goldwater's position, this notion of freedom, that shifted, shifted the party, that you take Goldwater's position, you take this proposition, you take Reagan embracing the language, that is what has established today's modern-day Republican Party. Today's, today's yeah. modern-day Republican Party has been born out of supporting segregation. It came out of an idea that was designed to permanently divide Americans racially in terms of residential segregation. And they took this idea of using freedom, it's your absolute right to permanently divide people, and they applied this to everything. So to understand why this is important, imagine a conservative movement that consists of all these very diverse causes, with some people caring about abortion, some people caring about guns, uh, some people caring about limiting civil rights. You had all these diverse, or campaign contributions, or the Koch brothers about business regulation, climate change, whatever. You have all these diverse issues. What unites them is the same vocabulary, the same idea that absolute freedom is what's at stake. And so instead of an sort of adventitious alliance of disparate groups that could break up easily over many issues, you had the same reinforcing message that liberal government is out there to take your freedom away. And that that's what and it's the dynamic of that message that's driven this party, the Republican Party, so that only those people can aspire to lead it who endorse this and who view this. And so, you know, when I look at, you know, what's happened with vaccines and masks, for example, here's a sort of a, a new case of this. Why has this become such an issue? It's become such an issue because Republican leaders have no choice but using this idea of absolute freedom to oppose mask mandates and vaccine mandates. Here's DeSantis in Florida having campaigned and made his whole thing, the left is coming to take away your freedom. So he therefore has to violate the most basic conservative principles of local control of schools and employer, you know, employers deciding on how to treat their employees. He has to do those things to maintain that ideology. Here's Abbott in Texas who's being run against on the right for his own mask mandates a year ago, having to oppose mask mandates. Here's Donald Trump told by his advisors it would be politically wise 
if there were mask mandates and support for masks during the presidential run, and his response is, that would be off-brand. Right. Republican leaders are trapped by the message that's been created that has driven their party. This has become their only issue. And see, here's the thing. Here's the thing that that that, that is that is so important here. Uh, when, as 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 what you've laid out and 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 what we're talking about, it is that notion, freedom, freedom. Even the use of that word, the, the juxtaposition is that here you had a black freedom movement, the civil rights movement yes. that was based upon freedom. Yes. But then you had this appeal to white voters that essentially the Republican Party was saying, you're losing your freedoms because of them. Exactly. That your freedom depends on not giving rights to other people. It's the very opposite of the idea that freedom belongs to the country as a whole and freedom is shared and your freedom depends on others. And so what you have, you know, it's, it's like the paradox at the heart of American politics that nobody talks about. Um, that if you ask Americans right and left across the political spectrum who disagree on almost everything, what's the highest value of the country? What's the purpose of the country? They'll all tell you the answer is freedom. But as, and the assumption is that we're talking about the same thing. That when Ronald Reagan talked about freedom, he was talking somewhat more or less about what Jimmy Carter or Joe Biden or somebody might be meaning by freedom. Say nothing of Martin Luther King. Okay. But that's not true. And part of what the history in this book I've written about the history of segregation and the realtors, part of this history shows this was deliberate. This was designed as an alternative political vocabulary precisely to oppose that of the civil rights movement. What you have are two opposite ideas of freedom. Part of you know, where I come to in the book is to say, if you want to change this vocabulary, if you want to go back to, you know, Martin Luther King used the word freedom 20 times in his speech at the March on Washington. He used equality once. This was a movement based on right. the power of the idea of freedom. Right. Because, what, because what, King, yeah. what King kept saying is, he said, in fact, he said it on April 3rd, 1968, when he said, be true to what you put on paper. And the whole movement was, America, we are going to force you to actually do what you put on paper. Because what's on paper is different from what you're actually doing uh, in action. And when you think about, and to, to really broaden this thing, uh, 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 Gene, yeah. is that what people yeah. don't understand that this period was also the advance in the beginning, the underpinning of these conservative foundations, Heritage Foundation, uh, Scape Melons, what they founded, all of these things because they were also angry that it was the federal courts, which is also why the Republican Party has made an assault on the federal judiciary a major Absolutely. part of their focus is because they were angered at the federal judges were yes. taking their freedom. Right. You know, the Heritage Foundation in 1984, 20 years after Proposition 14, said the secret to victory in civil rights for conservatives, they were writing this in 1984, 
as advice to uh, the Reagan administration for their second term for the Justice Department. The secret to victory has been to redefine the terms that Americans were in favor of equality, they were against segregation. So the key to victory has been for conservatives to redefine the term. The most critical of those terms was the, was the idea of freedom. That was the key to victory. And with the notion, and so, you know, so was, you know where I started that led me to this book was I, I was in a uh, graduate human rights seminar at Stanford, and I asked the question of myself. I said, why is it that on every issue, every issue affecting civil rights, conservatives argue that civil rights are violating American freedom. Where did that come from? Has that always been the case? And the answer is it goes back to this precise period in the 1960s as a way to oppose the civil rights movement, to say that your freedom means what the government is giving to, is taking away and giving to somebody, is allowing people not like you to have, that that's what your freedom means. You know, there's a lot of, you know, centrist Democrats sort of view what happened in the 60s as well. This was white backlash. And so this was some, you know, sort of natural reaction to, you know, the uprising in Watts or to, you know, extremism or something else. No, it wasn't that. It was an organized effort to claim a populist mantra in the name of freedom that was organized precisely to oppose any change in the, the kind of segregation that existed that was so overwhelming. Um, it happened, this was a, as Martin Luther King talked about this, white backlashing, this was before Watts, this was before, you know, the, uh, the Voting Rights Act, this was before those things. This was simply the first efforts to try and break down in the mildest way possible the limits of segregation that denied opportunities in everything, in jobs, in housing, in schools, um, in transportation, um, to break those down, here was the response. You know, at the time, to tell you how, how much a change this was, they asked, you know, Goldwater only won 40% of the vote on the same ballot, Proposition 14, both in California and nationally. And they asked voters at exit polls of this 40%, how many had voted for him because he was a conservative? And the answer was less than a quarter. Less than 10% of all voters voted for him because he was a conservative. This was the, the great debacle in the conservative movement. Everybody wrote them off. This language of homeowner rights, that freedom belongs to you, was the language that allowed the, the conservatives to then become the most powerful force in America for the next 50 years and shift the country more and more to the right. That's what's happened. All right, folks, that's not Mark Anthony Trevino in just one moment. Oh, that spin class was brutal. Well, you can try using the Buick's massaging seat. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Can I use Apple CarPlay to put some music on? Sure. It's wireless. It's something we all like. Okay, hold on. What's your Buick's Wi-Fi password? Buick Envision 2021. Oh, you should pick something stronger. That's really predictable. That's a really tight spot. Don't worry. I used to hate parallel parking. Me too. Hey. You really outdid yourself. Yes, we did. The all-new Buick Envision. An SUV built around you. All of you. Betty is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now, she's free to become Bear Hug Betty. Settle in, kids. You'll be there a while. Ooh, where you going? 
Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Rupp. Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. This is fascinating. Um, you know, I, I sit here and, and 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 right here, I have a variety of books. I've got. Uh, White Supremacy Confronted by Gerald Horn, uh, W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America. Uh, there's a book by Denton Watson called Lying in the Lobby. Uh, it's about Clarence Mitchell um, uh, and the NAACP. And what, 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 what I constantly am trying to, to explain to people is that for, the, for that, that the period that I call the Second Reconstruction, that I call that the the Black Freedom Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, the Second Reconstruction. Yeah, it, it is what you had here was you had this moment where fight for our rights, and it was and, and when you talk about the, the percentage of Republicans who voted for uh, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, but I remind people, I remind them that that last one was the toughest that Republicans aligned Northern Republicans aligned with Southern Democrats to filibuster in the Senate, that fair housing act. It was Senator Edward Brooke who was able to break it in early 1968. And the only reason the 1968 fair housing act would got passed is because King was assassinated and on April 5th, LBJ sent a letter to the House saying, let's honor the life of this, of this man and pass the Fair Housing Act. And that's when it was signed. It was, uh, it was signed uh, nine days later. But Republicans aligned because they said, OK, now look, now we, we didn't give you all right to vote. We let you all ride on buses and stuff along those lines. Oh, but hell no. When it comes to living in our neighborhoods. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the, the Fair Housing Act was the one, and his prior efforts were the first major political defeat, you know, Lyndon Johnson suffered in 1966. It took an enormous effort because the realtors, just as they had in Proposition 14, organized national letter writing campaigns and political campaigns precisely about this. And it took both King's assassination, but also before that, basically legislative trickery to um, to lull the realtors into thinking this law that was being the Civil Rights Act of 1968 originally was only protecting civil rights workers in the South. It got through the House of Representatives just as that and then was amended by um, Senator Brooke um, precisely because the realtors had not been paying attention to it. And then it got to the point, right, it, I mean, this, this was the whole strategy, was instead of having all the hearings and everything else, here's the biggest issue in some ways politically in the country. They had no hearings on this, nothing else. They just said, all right, just adding this to the law. Okay. And it was King's assassination that then made that, you know, clearly possible. But what's important to recognize, so you think of this as the last, you know, uh, great triumph of the civil rights movement. But it was dramatically weakened by the fear of the populist revolt of Proposition 14. So by supporters as well as opponents, it got watered down 
funding was always very weak to it. It didn't have any administrative enforcement issue, any enforcement provision, which has been true. That's what the whole issue was in California over that law. And more important to this day, fair housing has remained weak precisely because of the power of this idea of freedom to drive American politics further to the right. And so you look at, you, you, so if you ask why segregation persists in this country today, you know, why African-Americans still, you know, making $75,000 a year live in neighborhoods where the median income is $20,000. Why does that happen? Why are they so excluded? The answer is because of the legacy of that era. Partly it's the weakness that fair housing has had. It's always been a target for conservative politicians. Say, oh, they created fair housing. So if people aren't living, you know, everywhere and they're dispersed, it must be because they want to, right? Not because they have no, not because segregation has continued. So they've used that messaging. But what's happened is, so if you, if you can look at, at a couple of levels, if you really enforce fair housing, if people really lost their licenses for discriminating or appraisers for appraising things improperly or banks for turning down loans applications by Americans with the same credit scores at twice the rate as whites. If you really provided enforcement money for that, that would make a difference. And in the larger picture, what's going on is this idea is that it would have taken powerful government action, federal action, to enforce fair housing, to make a difference. And it's precisely the political legacy of this era that we're talking about, this idea of freedom that's been the, the idea of uh, Senator Rubio in 2015, you know, they sponsor a bill, you know, for freedom to zone, to protect the right to zone, the freedom to exclude. They call that American freedom rather than the freedom to be able to buy a house. They say that's the basic freedom of the country, the freedom to control and shape the destiny of a community at a community level. It's the power of that idea that has prevented successful government action. And so you have the enormous legacy, the economic legacy, the household wealth legacy, the legacy of single family zoning, all those legacies have taken enormous government action to overturn those. And that's precisely what this political legacy, this ideological legacy, freedom as a way to divide people, has made impossible. That's what I think is really at stake. The
like what they think. I want me around with some keys in my pocket. All eyes on me. They think I'm going back to jail. Ain't really on that door. Lemon like a some thug. Till the day I die. I know y'all watching. I know y'all got me. Till the day I I know y'all know this is thug life. Jumpstart the season with big holiday savings from JCPenney. Now through Sunday. Let the fun begin with Disney toys. Now up to 25% off. Or give your family the warm fuzzies with 40% off outerwear. Don't forget to use your coupon to save an extra 25% on select items at checkout. The holidays are officially here at JCPenney. Offers valid on select items through 1031. Toys excluded from coupon. Some exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details.
wish you were here, but you're not Cause the drinks bring back all the memories Of everything we've been through Toast to the ones here today Toast to the ones that we lost on the way Cause the drinks bring back all the memories And the memories bring back, memories bring back you There's a time that I remember When I did not know no pain When I believed in forever Everything stayed the same Now my heart feels like December When somebody say your name Cause I can't reach out to call you But I know I will one day Yeah Everybody hurts sometimes